0: Good morning, church. We're reading today from 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll do the full chapter. And if you're going in the Blue Bibles, flick to page 355. So chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, If by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death by the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nishmi king yeah. over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel. And Elijah will put, will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his coke around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. And then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant.
1: Well, thanks, Leah, and a very good morning, everyone. My name's Cam Maxwell. Um, If uh, you're relatively new around here, I used to be a pastor here uh, for about four years, and as Jamie said about six months ago, I took quite a large group from here. Uh, We went down to Tonsley and uh, have been underway there since about March. Uh, But it's been really great uh, being back here and uh, taking us through a few parts of One Kings. Uh, For the regulars, if you're starting to get worried, why is Cam here so often? He was supposed to leave. Everything's fine. We plan this out months in advance. That um, Some sermons I've already preached i will be able to come and, uh, and share with you here. Uh, as a good way to, yeah, to use our resources and time across the uh, the two churches. Um, I've got to say though, um, how thankful I am that in God's kindness, I've been here on two very encouraging weeks. Last week, a double baptism. Uh, very few things are more encouraging than that. And this morning, uh, the all singing, all dancing Professor Jeff Wiggle. Uh, fantastic, isn't it? With the uh, fire breathing theologian. It's uh, it's good to uh, good to be here uh, on such an occasion. Um, now, I find myself um, regularly wondering. Well, actually thinking to myself that God probably should do things differently. Have you ever had that sort of moment Uh, thinking to yourself, I wish God would do things differently? God is, of course, incredibly powerful. He can do anything He wants. Uh, He could change every single life on the planet overnight. Just click of the finger. Uh, Any person He wanted to uh, could change their life forever, giving them joy and peace and hope and a deep relationship with Him. And yet, instead, God asks us, uh, normal people, limited people, uh, to do the very difficult and uh, often hard work of sharing the good news of Jesus. Uh, God doesn't exactly make it uh, smooth sailing for us all the time, does he? He could have given us some kind of uh, magic wands that every time we wave it it changes people's hearts and they uh, bow down in worship to their Creator. Or maybe, like we saw last week with Elijah, calling down fire from heaven uh, to demonstrate God's power. Imagine if we could do that, just on command, uh, just to show a skeptical world that God is very much alive, he's, he's real, he's powerful, and he cares so much about us. God hasn't done that, and I think with the fire thing, that's probably, probably good. Uh, I mentioned the, the risk assessments you'd have to run at work every time you had a, an argument about whether <laughs> there's a the God or not. I'm sure Marcel did a great risk assessment this morning with his uh, kids talk, I'd like, look forward to seeing that later. Um, at a personal level, though, of course, we all have people we dearly love, uh, people that we're desperate, uh, that they would come to know Jesus as their saviour and their king, and yet, for some reason, God doesn't seem to be answering that prayer. We're thinking, like, why not? Is it me? Is it saying I'm not doing right here? I might, my prayer's somehow not good enough. I think, for me, that the times I feel this the most strongly are the times that um, I'm wishing God would do things differently it's when something promising ends up kind of going nowhere. Uh, it's kind of even worse when your expectations are kind of are lifted and then kind of out crashed. Uh, you sort of seeing God do something you think great in someone's life, and, and then it sort of all falls apart. Uh, quite recently, uh, there was a, as a young man, a pretty new Christian. Uh, he was growing; he's getting plugged into life at Tonsley, and it was exciting, right? Seeing him come alive as he started to find out what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, and recently, uh, kind of out of the blue, he just let me know that his faith has collapsed and there's kind of nothing for us to talk about anymore. Um, I thought God was doing something great, it looked like it, and then it, then it all falls flat. Uh, it's super discouraging, isn't it? And I'm sure you've had similar moments uh, in your lives in all sorts of uh, ways. But in those moments, I find myself not just you know, doubting myself as a pastor, but, but more than that, I just find myself getting frustrated at, at God's plans. Like... Why don't they seem as good as my plans? My plans are great. Why can't, can't God just get, online and get in line and do what I want? I wish that God would make evangelism easier and give us greater success rates. Every time we shared about Jesus, wouldn't that be great? Conversions everywhere. Uh, wouldn't it be great if God could help us make disciples really quickly and grow people to maturity super fast? That'd be great as a pastor. Wouldn't it be great if you know, being a leader in a church was, was free from any discouragement or setbacks? Those things God could do that He doesn't seem to. Now, here's my long list of things that uh, I find discouraging, but in those moments you find yourself discouraged, uh, it's good to be reminded that we have great company like today in the prophet Elijah, the great prophet. I'm hoping as we spend some time looking at what Elijah does and what he uh, learns about God uh, and God's plans, I hope it will be really helpful for us in those moments uh, of discouragement to remain faithful uh, to a good God who has fantastic plans. Now last week, uh, Marcel gave us a, sorry, Jeff Wiggle gave us a, a fantastic introduction to uh, chapter 18 just before. Uh, last week we saw Elijah at his peak, I think. It was an incredible scene. Before all of Israel gathered on Mount Carmel, Elijah calls down fire from heaven. Uh, he embarrasses uh, the prophets of Baal, uh, the idol Baal, uh, who couldn't bring down fire. Uh, Elijah proves once and for all that Yahweh, the God of Israel, he alone is God. The nation and the king, amazing, they repent. They turn and say, yes, you alone are God. Like, how pumped must have Elijah been in that moment? Like, finally, it's happening, the nation is coming back to worship Yahweh and Him alone. This is great. You can kind of imagine Elijah running victory laps around Mount Carmel. In fact, if you have a Bibles open, at the end of chapter 18 there, um, it's good But by the way, it'd be great to keep your Bibles open as we look at chapter 19. At the end of chapter 18, uh, the final verse, I think it is, Elijah has the power of the Lord come on him, and he outruns the king's chariot, running about 40 kilometers, as it were, to the capital of Israel, uh, Jezreel. Now, there is a prophet, right, running 40 kilometers fast in a chariot. He's on top of the world, isn't he? Things are going great. How things change uh, when we get to chapter 19. Now, just to uh, help get our bearings, or if you um, perhaps called entirely to, to one king, so the main thing you need to know today is Ahab uh, is the king of Israel and he's been a terrible king, uh, just atrocious. Um, he was on Mount Carmel. So we assume that when he saw fire fall from heaven, he was among the people of Israel falling down, saying, the Lord alone, he is God. That's Ahab. Jezebel is his wife. And it seems, if you read back uh, the history here, she's the one that seemed to introduce Ahab and Israel to, to idol worship. And she, Jezebel, is not at all pleased to hear that her prophets, they were killed as part of this winner-take-all contest on Mount Carmel. Now you could read far more about Jezebel and you realise she's not a lovely lady at all um, and you get a taste of that here. She sends a death threat to Elijah, it's a bit stronger than a threat though, if you have a look. Uh, it's a vow, it's a promise in verse 2, Elijah, I will most definitely kill you tomorrow, so you know, sleep well tonight. Now, this is where things really take a turn in Elijah's story. He's on top of the world. He gets his his promise from the queen. And you wonder, what's going on? Because before this, Elijah has raised people from the dead. Uh, Food has miraculously appeared at his prayers. He's called down fire from heaven. And when Elijah prays for drought, there's drought. When he prays for rain, there's rain. Elijah seems to be unstoppable. So why does a man like Elijah, a bold, powerful prophet, why does he get scared Like, he could call down fire from heaven on Jezebel, right? I assume that's an option for him. We're not told, though, why he's scared. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, We actually don't have many of Elijah's thoughts laid out for us in this chapter. We have to do a fair bit of uh, guesswork at points. Uh, So I'll try and let you know where I'm uh, speculating or or guessing, I suppose. But here we're just not told. So we should be careful guessing too much about why Elijah's scared. But on the surface, it's, it's kind of fair enough. Uh, Jezebel has a proven track record of killing people, she's pretty good at it, especially prophets, uh, they're an endangered species. At the surface, running from her is actually a pretty sensible thing to do for Elijah. But it seems to me that what this represents for Elijah is not just a dangerous threat, it also represents a devastating reality, uh, and I think it comes to, um, to settle in. I reckon Elijah was hoping, uh, which is fair enough, Elijah was hoping that King Ahab was going to get on with reforming the nation, He's going to get rid of the idols, and idol worship. But now, Elijah realises that's not going to happen. Ahab can't even reform his own house. If he can't do that, how's he going to reform the nation? It seems to me Elijah had plenty of time to let that reality sink in as he fled a long, long way. Now, I've got a map here for you, I think. I think I remember to put slides in. Now, uh, you see, oh, I can't see all the details there. Uh, he's just run 40 kilometers from Mount, Je- um, Mount Carmel to Jezreel. He keeps walking then nearly 200 kilometers to Beersheba, uh, which is right down south. It's actually in Judah, not uh, the northern part of Israel. It's a different king. Um, he should be in safe territory here. By the way, I reckon that'd be a really nice walk if you have yet to visit Israel. Yeah, good 200 Ks, I reckon. Verse 3, uh, spare a thought here if you're looking at Elijah's poor servant. Uh, he gets to Beersheba, he leaves his servant there and, he, and heads off to the wilderness. You just kind of wonder, does the servant kind of wait there for Elijah to come back? He just he never sees him again, actually. He's probably still there waiting. Um, Elijah, though, is, is clearly the guy to feel sorry for. He heads off for a walk into the middle of nowhere. Uh, he finds a broom, brush, a broom bush, perhaps a bit like this one here. Uh, he sits down under it and he prays that, in verse 4, God might take his life. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He lies down to sleep, and it seems that he's hoping to never wake again. What a sad scene. And I think with that kind of backstory, I think we can kind of get it. He's been on the cusp of seeing the nation returning to right worship of God alone. Uh, Elijah's prayer, above all prayer, has seemingly been answered the highest of highs for Elijah, literally on top of a mountain, and now reality sets in. It's not going to happen. The expectations of great things have come crushing down and it seems to have crushed him. This wasn't Elijah's plan. It didn't seem to be heading this direction. And surely it would be better, wouldn't it, if God got in line with Elijah's plans at this point? As I said, I'm sure many of us can identify with this kind of sensation, this, uh, this crushing kind of moment. Uh, some of us might have experienced even worse for all sorts of reasons. Uh, feeling there's no hope or no purpose, that God himself is the one that seems to have pulled the rug out from under us. And of course, the the Bible doesn't sugarcoat our experience, does it, as the people of God. But I think, helpfully, even as bleak as it is, I think Elijah still gives us a glimpse glimpse of a good way to respond in these moments. As bleak as it is, Elijah still prays, doesn't he? He doesn't take matters into his own hands, he still prays. The prayer is acknowledging that God is ultimately the one who has power over life and death. As bleak as the situation is, Elijah still prays, which I think models for us uh, exactly what we need to do. Our reflex often is not to turn to God in our pain, to tell him how disappointed we are, how gutted we are. I think Elijah and a whole host of those in the Bible, I think they show us here a right response to God. It's always the honest one, as painful as it is, just, just talk to him. The whole scene here in the wilderness, uh, devastated by the direction of his country and uh, seemingly the failure of his job as prophet, um, there's a deliberate echo here, actually, of uh, another great hero of the Bible, Moses. In fact, as Elijah goes into the wilderness and complains to God that all this is too much for him, it's not fair, he's doing exactly the same thing Moses did, uh, who also asked, Moses also asked that God would take his life as well. Moses had a bad day too. Um, if you want to read more about that, I encourage you to have a look through Numbers chapter 11 if you're taking notes. Numbers chapter 11 is the place to go. In Numbers 11, Moses is so sick of Israel, their hard hearts. He says, It's not fair. I have to lead them. I don't want this job anymore. If this is your plan, God, I'm out. You might as well go ahead and kill me. Moses and Elijah are both saying, This isn't fair. This isn't what I was expecting. This isn't what I thought the plan is. I'm done. So what does God do for his people when we say, I've had too much? I'm too crushed? God, I feel like you've let me down. What does God do in those moments? Will God say to Elijah, look, toughen up, princess, get on with it. does God give him some nice poem about footprints in the sand? I love what God does for Elijah here. At his lowest point, after a massive journey, God says to him, look, have something to eat. Uh, does anyone remember, uh, there's a Snickers commercial, uh, a very memorable slogan, you're not yourself when you're hungry? Does anyone remember that? Uh, yeah, great advertising campaign. I, I don't think it's true. Like Snacks here, we see, are biblical. Elijah's right at the bottom, and God gives him food. Now, I hope, by the way, the marriage enrichment course coming up, um, one of the things you hopefully have worked out if you're married is that um, you should always have your disagreements after dinner, right? Before dinner, that's not a disagreement. That's a fight. Have dinner, fill your bellies, then get into it. But here for Elijah, I think this is a great picture of God's complete care for us as his creatures. He knows we get tired, he knows we get hungry, that has a real effect on us as a person. We're not just spiritual beings, we have bodies, we need help in physical ways as well. So God gives Elijah sleep, he gives him food, and notice, it's interesting, the angel even touches Elijah both times he visits. Perhaps recognising how alone he felt, and how much he just needed something, you know, hand on the shoulder, perhaps a bit of a hug doesn't say he's giving him a hug, but it's got that kind of idea, doesn't it? I think there's a real comfort in verses 5 and 7 for this man who's very alone. So please take encouragement. Uh, God really cares about the details of our lives, especially when we're at our lowest point and cry out to him. The other thing that happens here from verse 5 onwards, is, it is a, again, it's a replay of Moses and his experience in the wilderness. We see for Elijah, food and water are miraculously provided, we see the angel of the Lord, who Moses regularly met with. Elijah takes a 40-day trip through the wilderness, echoing Mo- Moses' 40 years in the wilderness. I've got a map here, another one. Uh, this is from Beersheba to where we think Mount Horeb might be. Uh, it's about 400 kilometers this time, uh, quite a long stretch. I'm sure it's lovely, but it's mostly in wilderness. But the key similarity between Moses and Elijah, I think, that really helps us in this story to realise is that Mount Sinai, where Moses ended up, uh, he spent 40 days on Mount Sinai with God. Uh, Mount Sinai was a place where Israel received the covenant. Mount Sinai has another name. It's really helpful to know that. I didn't know this until recently. Mount Sinai is also called Mount Horeb. Elijah and Moses get to the same mountain. Verse 8, you see uh, here in 1 Kings, verse 8 Mount Horeb is described as the mountain of the Lord. It's the same mountain that Moses went to. We're seeing a bit of a history echo here, and that'll help us understand as we kind of get through the rest of this chapter what's going on. Verse 9, we see Elijah goes into a cave, uh, perhaps uh, more accurately a cleft in the rock. uh, Perhaps the very cleft that Moses very famously shielded himself in as God's glory passed him by. Now, we don't exactly know what mountain it is, uh, sort of uh, one of the historical uh, arguments for sure, but there is a picture back here of the one we think is, oh, go back one page, sorry. Uh, yep, there we go. Um, that's the most likely Mount Horeb, as far as uh, these uh, historian uh, experts kind of think. Um, uh, there is even a cave that some people think is probably, next one, sorry, yep, uh, that's perhaps the cave, the very cave that Elijah uh, went to camp in. Now, please bear with me here. It's not just a game of uh, Bible trivia I'm playing with you. Um, you you Elijah and Moses doing the same thing. Look, great. Um, I think what we come to in the rest of chapter 19 is very confusing. It's a very strange conversation Elijah and God have on the mountain. And I think knowing that Moses in the background helps us fill in the gaps when things get really confusing. So let's keep going. Um, The second half of verse 9 onwards, here's that strange conversation. Um, I've read this, this conversation quite a few times. The more I read it, the more questions I kind of have about what is going on. Uh, To start off with, how are we supposed to take God's question here in verse 9? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, first assumption, I assume God's not surprised. Like, oh, what are you doing here? This is my mountain. Um, So perhaps it's a rebuke. What are you doing here, Elijah? You're supposed to be up in Israel being a prophet. What What are you doing? Why have you fled? Perhaps. Perhaps it's more why have you come here, Elijah? What is it that you're looking for? I suspect it's more the latter, but Elijah's answer in verse, t- verse 10 doesn't really help us very much, does he? So God asks him why he here. Is look at verse 10, Elijah responds, well, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. It doesn't sound to me like Elijah's really answering God's question, not really right and perhaps he's just as confused as we are like why he's there maybe he doesn't know instead of answering directly you see what he's doing he's complaining and fair enough life has been very hard so when Moses uh, stood perhaps in this same cave it was exactly the same thing as Moses and Moses alone was on the mountain Israel down below started worshiping golden calves God became very, very angry with Israel, and he offered Moses a chance to kick off plan B. Uh, Let me just read here from Exodus 32. This is uh, God with Moses, and hopefully it's been on the screen for you. "'I've seen these people,' the Lord said to Moses, "'and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you, Moses, into a great nation.'" Moses goes on to plead for God's mercy and God doesn't go ahead because actually God is always looking for an opportunity to show mercy, not judgment. It seems to me Elijah is on this same mountain, in the same sort of place that Moses stood, answering God's question, what are you doing here? Trying to remind God of the offer he made to Moses. I think he's trying to turn God's hand against Israel. He's complaining about these stiff-necked people. You know, he offered Moses that kind of chance to start again. "Let's Let's do that here, God seems to be what Elijah is doing. Perhaps Elijah even wants to be at the start of a new, new nation that God would bless, I don't know. But it seems to me the reason that Elijah has come to this mountain is to ask that God would abandon his covenant with Israel, his relationship with them, and to wreak judgment on them. So what does God do? Israel are terrible, there's no doubt. Will God stick with them again? He's been very, very patient, hundreds of years. Or will God see reason? Will God come around and see things the way Elijah sees them? And come up with a better plan to bless the world? Because Israel don't seem to be working. We'll have a look here uh, in verse 11. Uh, God tells Elijah to go out as his presence passes by, just as he had done for Moses on this very mountain. A wind comes, it shatters the rocks, but the Lord was not in the wind. Then an earthquake the Lord was not in the earthquake, and then a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. Of course, it reminds me of one of my favourite books at home, Where's Spot? No, Spot's not under the staircase. <laughs> it's weird, though, isn't it? Like, why all this drama without the presence? Um, when Israel first received the covenant from God, this very mountain, this was exactly how God showed up. There was fire. There was earthquakes. Um, it was very clear that God was present in those things. But with Elijah, he's not. As if, perhaps, the absence is the point here. God isn't going to give some new covenant, some new revelation of himself. And I think that gets even stronger as we see what happens next. At the end of verse 12, after the fire came a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. Now, is Elijah hearing things at this point? Is he hearing words, like a quiet voice? Uh, actually, I think the point here is that Elijah doesn't hear anything. Other translations go with um, a thin silence, a gentle whisper is a thin silence. That is, he's not hearing God's quiet, still voice, he hears nothing. Just a breeze, perhaps, a whisper at most. Again, the point seems to be that the silence is deafening. If Elijah was looking for plan B, God is not saying anything, he gets silence. Now, I know this verse here about the thin uh, the. Um, the Um, A gentle whisper is sometimes used to suggest we need to sort of sit and listen uh, and carefully to hear God's quiet voice pop into our heads. Um, That's not what's happening here at all. God doesn't speak at this point. I don't think that happens anywhere in the Bible, as far as I can tell. I don't think that's necessarily a good suggestion. In fact, even without being a Hebrew scholar, and I'm, I'm certainly not, we can see here that Elijah, after hears this whisper, has to then go outside the cave, and then only in verse 13, only then does a voice actually say something to him. Before that, was silence. So if Elijah was hoping for a new covenant, a new plan from God, a change of, a change of tactics, uh, the fire and the earthquake might have first seemed like he's going to get one, nothing. It seems that the silence then, this protracted silence, it seems is the point. Uh, one person describes it this way, I'll put this uh, quote up on the slide, if that's all right. Um, the silence was profound there was not going to be a new beginning, a fresh revelation, a plan B to supersede the word of the Lord uh, given in the days of Moses. God is showing Elijah his plans to bless this world through Israel, they're not going to change. Instead, Elijah is asked again, what are you doing here? Why do you think you're here? Elijah gives exactly the same response as before, it's word for word. Uh, Perhaps Elijah doesn't quite get it yet. Or perhaps he's trying one last time, one last time to just convince God to change course. Israel is so bad, come on God. And so, God's response from verse 15 to 18, which seems completely disconnected at first, just a set of instructions, almost as if he's ignoring Elijah's kind of requests. He's told to go and anoint some kings and a prophet to succeed him. I think what's happening here is God is affirming he is not changing course. He has a good plan and it's going to bless the world. Elijah probably doesn't feel like it's a good plan. He feels like he's all alone. He hasn't seen the results he wanted and thought he should see. But Elijah is reminded in these instructions to anoint kings and other prophets that God's plans are far bigger, far, far bigger than what Elijah can see. And what's even better is that God's plans don't even depend on Elijah at all. Yes, God will use his efforts, but God's plans even include a foreign king here. It's outrageous for this point in the Bible. It also includes a prophet, someone who's going to continue the work Elijah has started, uh, long after, in fact, Elijah is finished. I think God's instructions here remind us, Elijah's focus has been too small, just what he could see, what he could do, but God has a plan to bring people from every tribe, every tongue and nation, into his kingdom. It's a plan that has spanned generations. Elijah had never even thought about uh, a suburb called Kernelite Gardens, and yet here we are. Turns out God's plans are pretty good. We've been graciously forgiven uh, by God from our idolatry and our worship because of a prophet who had it far worse than Elijah. Jesus, the great prophet. Rather than complain about how bad everyone else was, asking that God would you know, wipe us out like Elijah does here, Jesus steps in for us. He takes our place. That was all God's plan. A very, very good plan. God's work of salvation, it's going to be far better than we can see. Yes, we'll have discouragements, we'll have setbacks. I mean, Elijah here, he thought he was the only believer left in the land. But no, God, God actually gives him some comfort here and some encouragement. There's 7,000 people still faithful. Elijah, like, I'm I'm not as bad at this as you think, says God. It's just that you don't see the whole picture. Perhaps Elijah's crushing disappointment from earlier came from being too focused on himself. Uh, losing sight of the fact that God's plans aren't all about fire from heaven. They're not relying on what Elijah could or couldn't do. God doesn't actually need Elijah's help at all. But he wants to give Elijah the great privilege of being involved in his great plan, of year in, year out, gathering people to himself to bless this world. Of course, it's the same for us. I think we can get uh, critical, I know I can, get critical of God's plans, uh, his plan is to make his name great, because it doesn't look spectacular. It doesn't feel like it's going well so often. Uh, we feel like the plan is losing steam here in Western countries. Perhaps even this generation, you look at the charts and the graphs, and the census data, you, sort of, oh, you face disappointment and discouragement sometimes, despite our best efforts. And so I think this passage is an incredible comfort for us, that God's plan is a good plan. His instructions he's given us are very good. And what's even better for us is I think we know more about God's plans than Elijah. We know he is changing the world. He is blessing the nations as we speak through the good news of Jesus. I know for us, we only sort of see a room full of believers like this maybe once a week or thereabouts. It can feel a little bit like it's just us against you know, a very hostile nation, but it's not the case at all. God knew the 7,000 who didn't bow their knee to Baal. How many more millions, or billions, I guess? How many billions does God know by name? Just because we don't know them, we can think God's not very good at bringing salvation. But that's his job. He's very good at it. I think the encouragement today is to keep our eyes lifted on that bigger picture. To trust God's plans and to do our part in it. Be faithful with what he's given us to do. Faithful in our prayers. God has instructed us to pray, especially for the work of mission. For the gospel to go out. God's plan also involves us each belonging and investing ourselves fully in a local church, like this one, and so being fully on local mission with one another. God calls us to be involved in global mission, the biggest and best of all plans there have ever been, uh, which is why we encourage everyone to be praying for and giving financially towards a gospel work around the world, especially with uh, organisations like the um, Church Missionary Society, uh, like the Purdy family, who we've sent out from this very church to go to Chile to do great gospel work there. Now, the Purdy's are not calling down fire from heaven, as far as I know. You and I will never see, actually, the fruit of their work, perhaps until we get to heaven. But the full extent of how God uses our resources, our prayers, our energy, through our support of people like the Purdy's, God is blessing the nations. He is gathering and preserving a people to himself. The work of the Purdy family is equipping a whole new generation of pastors. In a part of the world, there are too many Christians and not enough leaders equipped to help them grow. That's the kind of work that knows God's plans and trusts them to be good. To see God's plans and see how they extend into the generations beyond us here and now. In fact, as we get to the end of chapter 19 here, I think we have a great image to finish on. Elijah, I think, is given hope for the future. He thought he was the only one, but he's given Elisha Not Elijah, Elisha, uh, his new apprentice. I think Elisha has perhaps the most enthusiastic response of all time to being called into kingdom work. Elijah will get to invest and train uh, the next generation, this great man, this wonderful guy who's slaughtered his animals and gone off, uh, thrown all into the wind. Because he realises he gets to spend time working on God's plan. This moment with Elisha, I think it reminds us that the next generation are critical for us to invest in. Katie isn't going to pay me to say this, I don't think, but um, we're once again reminded that God's plans will outlast us. So, do sign up for be involved in kids' ministry. What a great use of our energy and our time to invest in the next generation so they might carry on these great plans of God. God's plan really is the best plan. Like Elijah, we won't always get to see it. But we do get to see the incredible grace, the incredible mercy we have in Jesus. And so like Elisha, like those first disciples of Jesus who left their fishing boats behind, we too can throw our whole lives into the service of God, trusting that his plan really is the best plan for our world. Will you join me as I pray? Father God, we are sorry for the times when we pass judgment on you. On your actions and your plans, uh, thinking somehow that we know better, uh, please forgive us this and uh, give us great humility. Uh, please also give us comfort and encouragement in those moments and to help us turn to you in trust. Help us to trust that you are indeed powerfully at work. You are accomplishing your brilliant plan to bring countless people into your kingdom. So please sustain us as we serve you. Uh, please give us great joy. Please keep us motivated to do what you've called us to do, to be involved in your mission. Above all, help us to be motivated by the grace and mercy and commitment you have shown to us. We pray that your name might be known and be known to be great all around our world. Amen.